WonderThing Studios proudly presents the Roundtable Podcast, episode 109. I'm Marie Bellado. And I'm Dave Robison. And you've jumped into the Roundtable Podcast. <laughs> On the Roundtable Podcast, we fill a pool with cappuccino. No, we invite writers to come <laughs> onto the show to pitch a story idea to us and our esteemed guest host. And then we dive into the froth, exploring different types of cappuccino, some with whole milk, some with no milk, some with cinnamon, and some with nutmeg. And then we see what we can do to make that cappuccino the most perfect thing ever. And that froth is indeed a story. (laughs) This is a metaphor that we're working here. The cappuccino is the story. The froth is the literary gold. Yes. (laughs) And we want that froth to be perfect. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, God, you think we were, like, recording at, like, 8 in the morning where we've got coffee on the brain. But then we're writers, and then that's kind of like the, the, the gasoline of the writerly mojo. So It makes us happy. It does, and, and happy writers are good writers, absolutely. Marie Billadeau, always a delight, ma'am, to have you in the co-host chair. Uh, it really is like having a second guest host on the line, and that is always a pleasure, ma'am. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me to come and play in your delectable drink, my friend. <laughs> in my, in my Olympic-sized pool of cappuccino. <laughs> I'm always happy to join. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And, and you know, it's just the two of us. It's never any fun with just two people in a pool of cappuccino. Let's invite our guest host back to, to plunge into the froth with us. Dear friends, returning from a fabulous, marvelous infect. My, my brain is still full from all of the goodness that was explored uh, uh, in the 20 minutes with episode last week. Uh, please welcome back to the big comfy chair here at the Roundtable Virtual Studios, Gene Cavellos. Uh, Gene, God, it was a great conversation. It's always a pleasure to have you in the studios. And, and honestly, as, as much fun as last week was, <laughs> I'm totally jazzed at the prospect of brainstorming yet another story with you, ma'am. Thank you so much for making the time. I'm very excited to be here. I brought my inflatable ducky, and I'm ready to <laughs> roll around in the frost. <laughs> Mandatory equipment to bring with you on a roundtable recording the inflatable rubber ducky. Excellent. You are clearly a veteran at this craft. <laughs> Marvelous. Uh, Gene, before we dive into this, um, you know, our listeners are going, if they listened to last week, they, they, they know that we're hinting and alluding to something marvelous coming up in the future. But I will let you break that marvelous news. Gene, what's coming up for you in the world of Gene Cavellos? Well, um, as you know, I'm the director of the Odyssey Writing Workshops. Yes. And we have three awesome online classes coming up in January and February with uh, application deadlines in December. So if you've taken online classes, these are really nothing like those. (laughs) Uh, We hold our class meetings live online with web conferencing software. So you can talk to the instructor, you can ask questions, you can participate in discussions. It's as much as we can make it like a real classroom. And we have really um, in-depth assignments that are carefully crafted to help you master new skills, and you get a lot of feedback on your work. So we're very excited. We have only 14 students per class, um, and we're offering three different subjects uh, for this winter. And we only offer online courses in the winter because then in the summer we do our in-person workshop. Um, So we have... um, a course on bringing emotional resonance to your storytelling. So if people read your stories and they're kind of like, eh, uh, <laughs> they're not really feeling the, the heartbreak and the trauma and romance and joy that you thought, um, this could be a great course for you, uh, taught by award-winning novelist Barbara Ashford. And then our second class is world building in fantasy and science fiction. So. Um, If you do too much world building, not enough world building, (laughs) it's too complicated, nobody believes it, uh, distracting, any kind of problems like that. Patricia Reedy, uh, New York Times bestseller, 
uh, is going to be teaching that class, and she is the world building maven. So yes, anointed, she, anointed yes. world building maven. <laughs> <laughs> and then the third class we're offering, um, I will be teaching, and that's powerful dialogue in fantastic fiction, where we'll really get into having your dialogue serve multiple purposes in a story, um, propel the story forward, show the character show a change in the situation and generate subtext oh. that wonderful wonderful uh set of ideas and feelings that are not stated but they come out and they have such great power and that's what great dialogue can do yes make your dialogue carry its weight by golly <laughs> awesome very cool and where can people go gene to to sign up and learn more uh actually it'll be probably in the reverse to learn more and then sign up for for these fabulous workshops <laughs> Uh, you can go to odysseyworkshop.org and we have all the information there on how to apply and everything outstanding and there's all kinds of other fabulous resources there friends uh, uh, the packages of podcasts there's the the monthly salon uh, there's there's all manner of goodness writerly goodness to to turn you into a superhero of literary goodness uh, so do definitely make that scene that's that's awesome and exciting. What else, Jean? Do you have anything else going on? I know you're not a big con goer, but I think you did do a field trip during the summer uh, uh, conference, didn't you, into like Reader Con, was it? Yes. Uh, yes, we did. Um, I will be headed to Aresia in Boston in ah. January and to Boscone in Boston in February. Outstanding. So mainly hanging around the Northeast, but um, if you're headed to either of those conventions, please find me and come on up and we'll froth around. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> exactly. And both of those are high on the on the fantasy and or speculative writer's radar. So I think those are good choices. That's awesome. You're going to have a blast. Very cool. Well, I'll, I'll make sure all of that stuff gets in the liner notes so that the, the, the utter convenience, you can literally just fall into this stuff, friends. Uh, just a simple casual mouse click and suddenly your world is transformed because that's how we roll here at the round table. Marie, what's coming up for you, ma'am? You're always making all kinds of fabulous stuff. Uh, enlighten us, ma'am. What's coming up in the world of Marie Bilodeau? You know what's exciting and maybe not really announceable on social media and stuff, but I've just, I've been away everywhere. You have. You have been on the damn road. Holy crap. <laughs> I couldn't keep track of me. I'd spend one day at home. I'd be gone for two more weeks. It was it was fun. I met a lot of cool people. I, I met some old acquaintances, some old friends. I've met fans new uh new professional contacts like i mean it was it was perfect all of it and now i get to just be home which is <laughs> i will be writing quite a bit to catch up on everything but uh, i do uh one of the things i do have coming up is speaking of all the the workshoppy goodness is uh, i've been giving this 12-week workshop, uh, which is all online as well, and the winter novel workshop at Onder Academy was just announced, so if you want to do some writing fun from January to uh, March, that, that is up and running. Yes, indeed. At underemporium.com <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, and, and yeah, and that's it. I don't have a release until February, so I'm, I'm just going to be writing away. And, what are and you writing on? on the writing well, one of them is a Storm Talents novel, set in Ed Greenwood's Storm Talents. I'm working on one for that, but I've got this this book, and I've uh, I've pitched this book. I'm not agented yet as an author, um, and I've pitched this book to two agents. One I drunk pitched it, and the other one I pitched <laughs> it to a drunk agent. Um, so, anyway. <laughs> Both times it worked in my favor because they both requested it. I'm not sure if the drunkiness had anything to do with it, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> the, the invitation has been sent out, and I'm just putting some finding, fin, final polishing touches on it, and then I will send that off, and hopefully 2017 will see me be agented and leveling up in some new uh, publishing houses as well. That would be badass. That would be, and we will we will pop some champagne when that happens, ma'am. That's outstanding. I have no doubt it will. And, and friends, the, the Roundtable Podcast does not endorse alcohol as a tool for writing or agenting, uh, but you know, if that shit works for you, <laughs> roll with it. Awesome. Very cool. I don't recommend it. That was good luck that it worked. I yeah. did they were sucky bitches. <laughs> rolling way too many dice on that one, ma'am, but you know, hey, 
You 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 live a charmed life, so I have no doubt this is this is going to happen for you. That's very cool. I will I will make sure that goodness gets tucked neatly into the liner notes as well. Uh, but here's the deal. Right now, I'd love to pause for just a moment. Give give us some uh, airtime to to a fabulous Kickstarter or an ebook or a podcast or or I don't know a writer's workshop, something uh, that's fabulous that's happening out in the world. And when we come back. Jean, Marie, I would love to brainstorm a story with you. What do you say? Yay! Yeah! Yes, absolutely! <laughs> Yay, we can do better than that. But that, yes, absolutely, we will come back and do that. And, and friends, don't you go anywhere, because we will be right back. I'm the first. The first of a new kind of human being. The first and only true artificial intelligence. I'm not a huge fan of that term, though. I prefer not to use the term stranded time traveler. I am merely on an extended vacation. Against my will. Talking with normal people is almost impossible. I'm constantly on guard. What did you do over the weekend? I definitely didn't drink any blood. <laughs> I'd never do a thing like that. I mean, brother, when you crash your spaceship on Earth, you are pretty much shit out of luck. We don't need aliens anymore. Not when people have Twitter and YouTube and podcasts and Periscope and Voibox and Winger and heaven knows what else. I don't see the point in anyone living in the coffin. Right? Who benefits from our silence? Certainly not us. Look, I, I could take out this interview guy. I, I mean, I could like wrap this chain around his neck and kill him right now. Do you have any more questions for us? Well, I got a few, so if you want to hold off on wrapping around the, the chain, that would be good. This is Jared Axelrod. Join me on the voice of Free Planet X, where I interview aliens and time travelers, vampires and witches, advanced AIs and ancient monstrosities. It's This American Life for a Science Fictional Universe, and it's only at planetx.libson.com. Welcome back, dear friends, and now we get down to the business at hand. The reason why you're here, the reason why we're here, the story brainstorm. And that does not happen without a bold and courageous, a creative and courageous guest writer striding boldly to the slightly less comfortable writer's chair here in the Roundtable Virtual Studios. And dear friends, uh, our guest for this episode of the Roundtable has been writing since he was 12 years old, pounding away on a Smith Corona typewriter. His Poetry has been published in the Cornfield Review, an Ohio State University publication. His favorite tale to spring from his imagination is The Gumball Machine, a heartbreaking, sorrowful tale of a quarrel between a quarter and a gumball machine. Can you imagine the searing drama? I actually kind of want to read that. Uh, he's currently a senior <laughs> at Harding High School in Marion, Ohio, also vice president of the local National Honor Society chapter, a future history and or psychology major with a minor in English holder someday, eventually. Film enthusiast, amateur voice actor, who also reviews audio drama at audiodramareviews.com. He's a fan of 40s and 50s detective mystery tales and anticipates his ultimate demise will be at the hands of an iPhone 88 that has an app to rearrange a random person's atoms. Dear friends, please welcome to the writer's chair here at the Roundtable Podcast, Zane Sexton. Zane, dude, um, this is never easy, all right? And I've been in your shoes. I know what you're feeling right now. Uh, so, sir, I salute you. Hats off for your for your bold courage and your cojones for stepping up, man. We really appreciate it. Well, me and my cojones, uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to go there. No, let's just roll on. <laughs> so, 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 tell me, Zane, uh, your your imminent death as your molecules are rearranged by an iPhone app. Uh, uh, <laughs> where, where does that come from? What's the context for that? Well, you know, technology is always changing so fast. I can never keep up with it. And I imagine that someday they're going to invent something to kill us all. And imagine that it's going to be in the form of an iPhone. <laughs> So, so I, I can see a lot of dark 
future history, future future sci-fi stories coming out of you, man. Awesome. Bring it on. Let's get into this thing. I am keen to brainstorm your tale, sir. Uh, so you know how this thing works. We give you five to eight minutes. You give us the title and the genre and the length of the story. Give us the the tagline, the the themes if you have any. The world introduces to that. Uh, introduces to the characters. Give us the tent poles of the story, and and we will begin frothing in this Olympic sized pool of brainstorming goodness uh, in service to that tale, sir. I'm I'm done talking. Getting out of the way. The mic man is all yours. Well, me and my fifteen cups of coffee in front of me. We'll begin then. <laughs> Title and genre. My short story is a historical fiction noir piece called All the Fun the Law Allows. Now the hook line. That black guide, New War, 1967 Cleveland. An intellectual, cocky thief named Amory DeWolf steals a very valuable item from streetwise, sexy, overly feminist Mona Carver. The theme. The theme is a hopeless struggle between the rich and the ambitious. Between the not so good and the evil. It's a story about the hopelessness of dominating in a black and white world full of barriers. The world. Cleveland, Ohio in 1967 is no margarita drunk sunny beach escapade. It's an exaggerated dark atmosphere where there are many racial problems, fucking bottles on the streets. It's also the decline of the mafia family. The entire plot takes place at Flying Times Bar, which is a seedy-looking shithole overlooking Madison Avenue. The characters. Now, the protagonist is Amory DeWolf, a college-educated young man who decided that instead of analyzing crimes, it's a lot more profitable to commit them. It's a bit of a 60s Don Draper type of character. He's a, you know, tiny bit sexist and a massive hypocrite. He's an asshole, simply put. He is overly classy and uh, compensating for his poor beginnings. He's the type of person to wear a white tuxedo to a bar whose only delicacy is piss and beer. He refuses to go back to poverty and will do whatever it takes to get ahead. The, the antagonist is Mona Corver, a young, attractive woman. She may be small, but her eyes make up for it. Bright red and defiant, daring anyone to approach her. Uh, she's smoking a cigarette like one of those stains on the front of Life magazine. Her hair is ash-colored, and she is basically very smart and independent. But she is weighed down by anti-feminist society. She wants to define herself by not what others think of her, but what if she defines herself. Then the story. First off, it's not really a story that has a lot of action. It's, it's a lot more conversational. It's more getting into the psyche of the characters. The story takes place in Flying Times Bar in Cleveland, Ohio, in a fall day in 1967. It's a seedy shithole that no one decent would ever be caught in. So, Amory DeWolf, an ambitious freelance criminal, is only looking a tad suspicious due to his sweat tuxedo. He's sitting around in this bar throwing down scotches and basically waiting for its victim in order to ransom a very prized object. So in the meantime, he chats up with the bartender and they discuss sports or whatnot. And basically, Amory says something to the effect that the only thing Cleveland has to be proud of is the amount of algae in Lake Erie. He moves to a booth out of boredom and continues to steer about and complain about everything until Mona Carver arrives. And uh, he describes Mona as, you know, very sexy, as very uh, intimidating. So they go on to business, and she refuses to sit down. He says how they should act like civilized human beings, and they sit down and they start to smoke in the bar. In order to get her off guard, Emery asks, asks her about her social life. She comments on how she doesn't need a man in her life because, quote, All they do is drink and complain about why they drink. Mostly their wives. They overindulge in everything. Mostly whores. Lots and lots of whores. Uh, she is wealthy to, to her family business, which is marketed as a sane sony tune of Mrs. Carver's Easy Shave Butter. It comments that he hates their jingle and doesn't even know what Easy Cream Butter is. I don't really know that either. Before she can comment, the bartender approaches and Emery orders a scotch for himself and a daiquiri for her, commenting how it was the first girly sounding drink he could think of. 
And Moda, understandably, is a bit upset when he replies how feminism is this year's nylons. It'll be out of style before too long. Moda then asks why uh, he is now there defending America from the from Soviets because of the Vietnam War. And basically, he tells her how a friend of his got him out, out of the army due to constitutional syphilis. Then they finally get around to the point of the meeting. And I'm thinking I want it to be, have something to do with innocence, this very prized object, kind of like the briefcase in Pulp Fictions. So he asks, like, he asks for $1,000 and she pays for it, which is around seven grand today's money, which so it's a lot of money. You know, he leaves the bar and walks down to the shores of Lake Erie. He reveals that he gave Mona a fake item and pocketed the real one. He takes it out of his coat and stares at it, feeling a little bit guilty about what he has done. That's when he realizes that the rich and the powerful would always win, no matter what. It's a kind of moment where one realizes nothing will ever change. So basically, he gets rid of the real necklace by throw it, throwing it into the into Lake Erie, watching the green algae submerging the flapping, the item. All that gold and preciousness is gone forever. So he feels that something has died inside of him, and decides to go get another drink or two or three. I, I want the ending to be very dark and kind of a point of fact that nothing really ever ends. And how the status quo is God. The status quo is God? Well, you know, it's like uh, nothing will ever change. All right, cool. Now, that's a that's a solid pitch, man. Let me ask you, what are you hoping to get out of the next eh, half hour, 45 minutes of brainstorming, dude? Well, I want uh, conversational points because I want to add these characters. I want them to be very well developed. Because without characters in this kind of story, where nothing, nothing really happens per se i really want these characters to be fleshed out and realistic okay i i guarantee you i and you know i I, i've been known to manifest prescience from time to time and i'm looking (laughs) ahead into the future i guarantee you a rousing conversation is going to ensue in just a few very very short minutes we can we can help you out dude uh but before we do we really kind of need to uh, uh cover our ass uh so marie would you be so kind why, absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> Zane, you're about to experience a veritable deluge of ideas, insights, inspirations, and frothy goodness. It's important you realize that everything said from this point forward by myself, Dave, or Jean might be complete and utter and even perhaps unfrothy bullshit. <laughs> this is your story, and you decide what to use and when to cast aside. Is that clear? Yes, very. Okay. Wonderful. <laughs> Excellent. Good. Very cool. Well, let's dive into this then. Uh, and we always start off with a quick once around the table. Just a, a first quick pass between Jean, Marie, and myself to ask some questions of clarification, point out some, some high-level topics that we want to explore before we dive into the brainstorming froth. Uh, and we always start with our guest host. So, Jean Cavellos, start us off, ma'am. What, what are your first impressions of Zane's story? And and what questions do you have to help clarify the the literary terrain? Uh, well, I really love the realization that he has at the end that nothing will ever change. I think that's powerful, and I like the the thematic unity that he's going for with the story. Um, I guess what I want to know is. Why does this experience on this day make him come to this realization? Because it seems like this is probably a typical day and a typical kind of thing that happens with him. So how is this different? That's an excellent point, yeah. What is his goal on this day? Uh, If he wants the $7,000, what does he want it for? Is he broke or is it just more to add to what he's got? Why does he keep the real necklace slash briefcase slash whatever it is? <laughs> MacGuffin. Uh, and give her a fake one. What is he, what was his, I think he must have had a plan for what he wanted to do with it. If he was going to bring a fake one and a real one to this meeting, if I understand you correctly. 
So why did he make that plan, and why does he change his plan and throw throw it into the lake? Mm-hmm. I think those are some initial questions. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I quite agree. I quite agree. Now, just real quick, Zane, do you have any answers for any of those questions, or is it kind of just, it's just the way he is? Well, uh, this day... I kind of want to express how Emily the Wolf, yeah, you guys kind of touch on it, how this is kind of a normal thing for him to do. But the fact is, I want to get across that, you know, he got very drunk and he got very uh, emotionally attached to Mona Carver. And so, you know, she's she's special. She's not like the other, like the others, per se. And his goal is, uh, okay, the reason why he brought a fake necklace in the real one was because he planned to pawn off the real one on the black market so he can make even more money. And so, you know, him throwing away the real necklace is kind of a sense of accepting what he got and nothing more. That's kind of what I want to betray. Okay. Gene, does that help? To some, uh, to some extent, yeah, yeah, I think I think you're right. I think there's I think there's a lot more to, to dig in there, but you've you've opened up a lot of doors uh, uh, to explore. I think I think uh, Mona has just as many doors uh, uh, to be opened uh, as to make sure they're both uh, as well fleshed out and well invested in what's happening to them uh, as we move forward. Marie, what about you? First impressions and any questions? Uh, Jean touched on a lot of great points that I had written down too. I had one more for Amory and then I had a bunch for Mona as well. But um, for Amory, I found like he, especially in the first few scenes when he's portrayed as just bored, um, complainy, uh, he's already a thief. And so he's not a very likable character. Now, does he have a redeeming quality by chance? Well, well, uh, I imagine it to be very classy and like overly, overly uh, polite. Like you know, it's not redeeming. (laughs) Well, like like I said, he's kind of a Don Draper type of character. Like you know, on the surface, on the surface, he's kind of an asshole. But you know, there's something about him I kind of want to dig into. Okay, okay. Well, that's something we can uh, we can have fun digging into. Thank you. And then uh, for Mona. she strikes me as like like there's a lot of things that aren't very explained here um but she comes off as uh and this is just a quick pitch but right now she's very two-dimensional and um i mean she's beautiful uh she's fiery which is great but she, right now she comes off as a bit of a dumbass because she's going to be <laughs> like because like she's going to retrieve this valuable item and she doesn't bring she's rich so she could hire someone to go beat the shit out of this thug and get it back she could call the police and get him arrested but she decides to go sit down and have a drink with him so either there's like a background story i don't know which is cool and then she doesn't recognize the fake from the real item that might be a lack of knowledge on her part but if she's gonna go down to a seedy bar with a thousand bucks in her pocket to get this thing back she probably knows it pretty darn intimately well, exactly. Like, there's, there's got to be a good reason for her to do that because that doesn't sound like a, a smart plan or, or one that she needs to even do because she has money. She could just go and get him. I mean, if I was fiery and, and feminist and I had money, I would get people beat up all the time. I don't have a lot of <laughs> Assholes beware. <laughs> but, um, like, so is there, like, some kind of, um, what are her motivations then for her going herself? Mostly, I want to define her as very curious and maybe somewhat bored with her life. Because, you know, yeah, not a, not every day someone goes out to a bar with $1,000 and expects something <laughs> good to happen. <laughs> no, but, you know, I wanted to be portrayed as also bored with her life and having basically nothing else to do. Also, the item in question, I want to be very valuable to her, obviously, but... And I think that making it so her grandmother had this thing and she was very dear to Mona, I think that that would kind of help with the motivation a bit. Sure. I can see that. I think we can do better. But yeah, it's a good start. Good foundation. Anything else, Marie? 
those are a good start to just some of the basic questions I had. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah, thanks yeah. for the pitch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and Zane, I got to tell you, I, I love the noir vibe. Uh, it is a fascinating thing, especially in this modern day and age when uh, uh, the issues that defined the genre have be, have transformed so much in modern culture. And the fact that, you know, modern readers are going to be reading this and, and, you know, casting the lens back to that particular era of time uh, uh, is an opportunity to to do something and and I'm not sure you're you're leveraging all of that opportunity here you're definitely in on, on the right track there's a strong story here and there's obviously a lot of questions and a lot of curiosity and that right there indicates we've got some mojo to work with so we're on the right track um, I'm curious why fall 1967. Uh, is there any reason other than the fact that we could have a line about uh, how Amory uh, got out of the Vietnam War through, what was it, constitutional syphilis? Is there any yeah. other reason why that time frame was chosen? Well, I think that 1967 was a very good year. In, well, not a good year, but it was a very exciting year in Cleveland. Because, you know, uh, more to um, MLK was there around that same time period giving a speech and of course you know that was only about a year or two before he died and uh again it's mostly just background and i like the well new is new is typically is typically set in the 40s and 50s because you know that's when film noir became very prominent and so i wanted to like add 20 years to that i want to update it a bit but not too much why well because because uh, I really like uh, that. I really I like the sixties. Okay. I like Woodstock. I like the space travel. I like John F. Kennedy and Johnson and the Vietnam War. Mostly, it's very personal. Awesome. No, and and as we discovered in the twenty minutes with those personal points are the, the the foundation you stand on. The things that you love about the 60s, they need to be in this story somehow, some way. And and I think we can find ways to do that. That's that's awesome. That's very helpful. Um, in your story pitch, you said he describes her as sexy. Is this a first-person narrative? Yeah, because, yeah, it's all first-person. First okay, Because, right. you know, I feel better writing the first-person uh, first perspective. No, that's cool. You can get into the thoughts of the characters. And True. that's basically what Noah is all about. It's about what what this one guy or people are thinking at a certain time and the dialogue and witty comments about life in general. Do you anticipate switching over and getting Mona's first person perspective at any point? Uh I don't I don't know. I don't I don't really think so. Mostly okay. because uh I I just know. <laughs> Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, and uh, yeah, th again, th I, I have a lot of issues with um, character motivations that are summed up with complaining, bored, um, lethargic, don't really care, don't really give a shit. All of this stuff, Zane, I, I'm, I'm going to. And again, this is the bullshit meter is flying high at this point. But I think those are mistakes as a character. There's nothing here that makes me want to read more about these characters. After a few paragraphs of Amory complaining and bitching and whining, I'm moving on to the next story. I need something to make me care. And, and I think, I think you know, as the conversation unfolds, we can explore ways to make these characters worthy of carrying this story that you want to tell. My last question, Zane, is how do you want people to feel after they read your story? What is your goal? What are you trying to, and I'm not asking what the moral of the story is, but when, you, when people put down your book, how do you want them to feel? I want them to feel sad. I want them to feel... Like something that's got to change. Something I want. Them okay, those to, are two like, different things. Those are two very different things. One is okay. I want to go slip my wrist, which is how I feel right now, and the other <laughs> one is inspired or incensed. So, which is it? Well, uh, okay, scratch that. I'm guessing it's more of a reflection on oneself. I mean, that's what I want to get into. I want people to ask questions about about not only the characters but mostly themselves. So the reader like, then is like, going to need to have 
an identifying point where they can project themselves into Amory and into Mona so that we can actually be motivated to project ourselves into this emotional state that, that Amory finds himself at the end. Is, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah okay. Absolutely. Awesome. Cool. Uh, that's all I've got. So let's dive into this. Uh, Gene, where do you want to start, ma'am? There's, there's so much food to dive into. Uh, uh, where do you want to dig in? Okay, so I think this story is missing a character. And I think if you have a character who's more of an asshole than Amory, then we will like <laughs> Amory by default. So I think there, I mean, my way of developing that would be to have another character who is the original buyer that Amory intended to sell this necklace to. And that guy is a super asshole. And you start the story with the two of them at a table in the bar bargaining. So you cut out all of the preparing and throat clearing and just get to it. And he's a jerk, but Amory wants to, you know, make the money off of him. And he's going to give him the fake because what the hell, this guy deserves it. Then um, she comes in and inserts herself uninvited into this conversation because she wants to buy the thing instead. Oh, that's perfect. And she starts this witty repartee cutting down the asshole guy. And um, Amory gets really into working it with her, the two of them kind of playing off of this jerk. And finally, um, and he's kind of in a little small, subtle way kind of falling for her because he loves the fact that she also thinks this guy is an asshole and that they have this chemistry, this immediate chemistry in their dialogue. So you have warring goals, right? The asshole wants to buy the thing. She wants to buy the thing. And he is maybe changing his mind about what he wants to do. So uh, the asshole leaves in a huff. He agrees to sell the thing to her. And he thinks he's going to give her the real thing. But then he finds he can't, even though he likes her and maybe she's got this emotional attachment to the thing or whatever, he can't stop himself from ripping her off because that's who he is. And so that's why he realizes at the end that he's never going to change, that even in this circumstance where he really likes this person, he just can't do an honest deal. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I really felt like putting in a third character in, in some way would help to bring out, um, bring in conflict and bring out the, the chemistry between these two characters. So it's not just them doing exactly what they expected. They both come to do a deal. He wants to do the deal. She wants to do the deal. They do the deal and it's done. There's no conflict. There's no surprise. Um, this is nice. So I, I like yeah. that. And it also, it also, uh, uh, by, by having Mona being a very skilled teardown artist and, and, you know, insulting and taking down, uh, uh, the bigger asshole, then she, there's a perfect reason why Amory would be enamored of her because he lives a life of lies. And here she is speaking her mind, speaking it articulately and speaking the things that he's thinking. And oh, that's good. Yeah, there's an immediate, oh my God, here is a, here she becomes a ray of hope that he can actually transcend his life of lies and deception and thievery. She's a living proof that somebody can do that. And as you say, in the end, as is true of most noir stories, he doesn't have the strength. He's not worthy of that progression, that elevation, that evolution of humanity that, that he aspires to. That's fabulous i love that marie what do you think i love it well done guys another round of applause no i really love it and it pushes the uh it gives some of the nuances that we're missing because uh even though it's noir it doesn't mean it has to stay always even kill emotionally um and, and that's what you get here with some of the ups and downs of a potential partnership will he go for it will she stick around or call him out for being a jackass um Will they remain, like all of the questions that the readers will ask themselves as all the interactions are going on to, will they remain friends? Will they find love? Will he settle down with her even? Like, because the reader will take this further to try to predict what will happen. And then when the story becomes really noir and adopts its noir self is when at the end the, re the reversal is that there is no personal reversal for him. He goes right back to 
who he always was. And that's when you get that drop down. And if you want to leave them with that feeling of nothing will ever change, you have to show, shine the light into the corners of what could be. And unless we see what could be or what is possible, we don't feel that, oh, crap, it didn't change because we don't know different in this story. Right. That's uh, great. I mean, I love the idea of that. It really embodies what I'm trying to look for, the feeling I'm trying to leave behind. Kind of like, you know, a snot on a coat. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's the metaphor of the day right there. I think, our, I think our biggest challenge with this scenario that we're spinning on, I, I think this, this has legs, this has mojo, I'm liking it. Um, but I think our, our challenge here is that moment you know, we, we, if, if, if he's falling in love with her, she's a shining beacon of, of what he could be, blah, 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 blah. That moment when he's going to give her back the real necklace after after he you know sells the, the, the fake to the, to the guy or, or however that goes, he ends up with the real necklace. He has that opportunity to give it back to her as, as almost, almost his price, his, his, his uh, ticket to admission to being a human being rather than a scumbag. Uh, and he can't make it. How do you... I would think we would need to get a, some serious backstory or some strong sense of who this guy is and how deeply entrenched he is in his life in order to make that moment believable. Am, am, I, am I overthinking this? No, no, I don't think you are. I think that's a uh, very good thing I need to develop a bit more. Because mostly what I'm thinking for Amory is that he was, that he was homeless at for two years in his life. He had a bad childhood, basically. I need to have a lot of bad stuff happen to him. But not, not a lot of bad stuff, but, you know, some... I need to uh, develop a bit more on why he can never be in a poverty situation ever again. Well, I'm going to take know, a page from, from Gene's book here, uh, and, and we've touched on this, I think, Gene, in several conversations, is that first instinct uh, uh, is, is the same instinct that every writer is going to have. He had a bad childhood. He was grew up in poverty. That's why he wants riches. Yeah. Maybe we can take it in a different direction. Just just to see how it fits. Uh, uh, he had a great... I mean, obviously he went to college, for God's sakes. Uh, uh, so, you know, maybe, maybe he had... Uh, uh, he, he grew up in poverty, but he was strong. He was good. He, he, he was going to fight against the poverty. See, and this is sounding nice now. He was going to fight against that poverty. He built himself up from his bootstraps. He went to college. He was going to be somebody. He was going to be a human being. And then something happened that broke him. Uh, uh, and and that that thing needs to be somehow integrated into Mona, into this necklace. Maybe the necklace is a metaphor or something. I don't know. Or this asshole who's buying, trying to facilitate, broker this deal, whatever. Um, I don't know. I, Gene, what do you think? Is is there is there any food there? Is there anything worth pursuing? Yes, I, well, I love that idea of not going with the first thought to come to mind mm -hmm. uh, and that he had some experience or perhaps a series of experiences which we don't need to know about they can sure. be in the subtext um, that have um, eroded the promise of what he once thought he would be when Zane says something has died inside of him at the end that means something's still alive before the end right and so that something is like there's still some kind of spark of promise that maybe he thinks this deal is going to allow him to regain the life that he thought he would have. That if he can sell this necklace, if he can sell it twice over, once fake and once real, that he'll have enough money to do X. And then he realizes by screwing Mona with the by giving her the fake thing that he can never be X. Yeah. Right? He can never be that thing that he imagined he would become, no matter how much money he has. And that's why he throws it away. I love that. This is playing out like a David Mamet play. This 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 is a David Mamet play. This is and I, God, I can't remember the name of the play, but it, it's it's these two advertising guys. Oh no, they're movie producers, and this one producer guy gets sucked into this this project that 
has no business being made in Hollywood, but he's totally enamored with the nobility of the art and so on and so forth. And his buddy is going, are you fucking insane? This is stupid. You're crazy, blah, blah, blah. And the guy's, and then in the end, of course, he realizes, oh no, she's just as bad as everyone else. And things go back to the way they were. But it's it's that joy, that wonderful moment of possible redemption that mm-hmm. is then denied. That, I think, is the power of this story, Zane. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree 100%. That sounds amazing. Awesome. Does anybody know that play, by the way? Am I... I don't know if anybody's a yeah. mammoth fan out there. You, I, I know the play, and I've... Yeah, but it's, it's not it's like, coming, man. Well, it's David Mann, you know, Glenn Glary, Glenn Ross. I mean, most people have seen that movie. Yeah. It's the same thing. There's hope dashed, and everything goes back to the way it was. Uh, yeah. But th- but that moment, victory. Vic- well, the 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 moment and and the opportunity for introspection is in that hope that we're all following that things are going to change, and then you know, again, this is not my favorite genre, Zane. I will tell you right now, these types of stories are things that I watch because they're. Important. Important, but it's not because I like them. I don't own Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, even though it's a brilliant piece of cinema and theater. I don't own it because it depresses the fuck out of me. Uh, <laughs> so, so, but in order to make it work, it can't be depressing, depressing insults, blah, blah, blah. We need that redemption. We need to see that, as, as Gene so aptly pointed out, we need to see what died at the end we need to see that we need to fall in love with that we need to hope for it so it's death means something does that make sense yeah cool well I like that idea and I like the idea that basically what you'd be doing is you would be making a a promise to the reader from the get go that there is something that might change and the reader would continue reading regardless like the characters I think you can push to be interesting enough and sympathetic enough but if you make a promise to the reader that they want to see happen like wow okay we'll have that redemption moment I'll read for that and then whether or not that happens which in this case it's not you are giving them something to look forward to and then you're crushing their little hopes (laughs) because you are not you're bringing them so close to the edge you're like the ultimate tease and then it falls it falters at the end he as a character cannot make it which is part of the power of that but unless you have that promise then uh, the reader you will lose the reader because the reader will lead will read for something like what will happen and will it change and that's enough of a question that they'll keep going right right let's 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 turn the conversation this is this is good stuff and and i do want to come back to it because i have some ideas about how we can tie all this awesomeness together uh uh, gene let's talk a little bit about mona uh, a little bit. Uh, you, you've painted a very cool sketch of of this woman who comes in and attacks this greater asshole, uh, and and the lesser asshole admires him, uh, admires her for it, and I, and that's that's a very appealing picture. Uh, what what else do we need to to give Mona to make her an authentic participant in this story? I think. Well, we need to see why she wants this thing, I think. Yeah. Uh, um, I often like to leave the why question in the subtext, the answer to the why question in the subtext. But in this case, it may be explicit or it may be suggested. But I think we obviously we need to see that she wants it. But it would be good to have some idea why she wants it. I think we still haven't figured out what it is exactly and what her connection to it is. But that would tell us a lot about her. Um, it would also be nice to see some sort of internal conflict. So if her goal is to get the thing, does she distrust Amory? Um, does she you know, do a test on the thing to make sure it's... Uh, legitimate does part of her you know want the thing but then part of her wants a relationship with him maybe as they talk more and why is it that she would be attracted to him if she is um, when she you know doesn't have any other boyfriend why would this asshole this lesser (laughs) asshole be somebody that she would be attracted to um is it what does she see in him because maybe she sees the thing in there that is the thing that hasn't died yet i don't know yeah yeah what about you marie what are you thinking definitely some more 
delving down into her and her, her uh, basic motivations to it, and even something as simple as like the the going there just because she's bored isn't quite enough like (laughs) she has to be looking for something too she's not just going there because it's the only destination she's targeting it targeting it in a way instead Mm -hmm. of just like she has to have her ultimate purpose and it can't just be the necklace right well let me let me let me let me spin something for you and this is this is going to be a little heavy-handed it'll require a little more finesse and nuance than i'm laying it out here but but (laughs) let me let me let me toss out a, a what if So what if the thing that broke him was uh, uh, maybe maybe uh, he started a business, you know, he went to business school, started a business. It was going well. And then somebody broke the business, bought it out from under him, dirty dealing, shady stuff. He was stupid. He trusted somebody. And, and that person uh, betrayed him. And, and this, this, this was his dream. This, this company was his dream. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, maybe he sees, you know, Mona is an heiress to this, you know, creamy butter thing. You know, maybe he sees in her, you know, maybe, it was start, maybe she was starting out the same time he was. You know, maybe, uh, uh, no, a little little heavy-handed there. Anyway, um, he loses his business, and and then everything cascades from there. He loses his wife, uh, uh, who takes his child away because he he can't deal with the loss. He's broken because he could not bend. Uh, uh, And so he's condemned himself because he's lost all the things that he valued to this life of scummery and thievery and and fuck everyone, they're all dogs, and I'm just going to get what I can out of the world. The bigger asshole is the guy who stole his company. Oh, that's a good twist. And if he f- screws this guy over, and this guy, you know, he, he he's, maybe he's set up this thing where this guy needs collateral for a loan from a loan shark, and this jewel, this gem is going to be that collateral so he can be the big cheese. The, the big asshole is going to use this thing to, to become even bigger. But if he doesn't have it, then he's crushed. Something again, heavy-handed, I know. But uh, uh, so, so this is his ultimate revenge. Uh, uh, he's gonna give. Him, he was always gonna give him the fake one, and bilk him for it, because he would get money. The guy would be hurt dramatically for it. Plus, he could sell it again to the dame, and then he's got all of this money, and he can go back to being who he was. He will do it right this time. This is his shot at redemption. And then Mona comes along. And Mona shows him a different way. Mona shows him integrity, shows him standing up for yourself and and articulately doing it in a way that makes sense. And he already kind of grudgingly admires her because she's running a successful butter company. And here's the thing. Uh, uh, at the end, when the the big asshole leaves with the fake one, they start talking about merger. They start talking about this, that, and the other. And he's about to give show her he has the real necklace, and we can use this together to 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 heal all the world's ills. And somebody runs in and says, "Holy crap! The big asshole that just left here was shot. He's dead in the street because that's why Mona was here." Mona came here because she wanted to find all the assholes that were messing with her and kill them. And when he discovers that, he realizes she's not the virtuous light that he thought he was. And he keeps the, he keeps the real necklace. And that's the thing that died. I'm ready to go slip my wrist. Anybody else? Always <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. oh, <laughs> so cheerful. <laughs> yeah, I know. See, I'm, I'm amazed at the, at the stuff that comes up when you get into a brainstorm. So, well, so and, and the thing that's fun with something like that, too, is that you don't have to make any of that explicit, too, because you are using first-person point of view. You could make it that he is assuming. Like, he could be yeah. wondering himself, why is she here? Why is she here? Like, why did she come meet me here? Like, it doesn't, because it doesn't make sense in a way. And she could give him a half-cooked idea, which might be the real reason for her, too. But he's thinking, well, maybe it has something to do with this. Like, he could actually make up some of this. Like, no, she is tainted in some way, even though I can't see it. Like, what am I missing that I can't see? She never confesses to, to, you know, killing the dude. But he might see a smile or even just a, a, a twitch on her face he can't identify. 
And because he's so distrustful, even though she never says, yes, that's why I'm here to kill these guys, uh, he can't trust her. It's it's the crack in the armor. Yeah. Gene, yeah. what do you think? I'm thinking that the thing that they're all negotiating over is a patent for an invention Ooh. that will make this Ooh. business of whoever gets it work. And he invented this thing. This is the thing that's special to him. This is why he started his business. But the business went under because of the big asshole. Um, and now the big asshole wants <laughs> to buy his invention, and it's all he's got left. So he figures he can screw the asshole by giving him a phony invention that's probably going to blow up or something when he tries to build it and destroy his factory. And he'll keep the real one and he'll have enough money to start his business back up again. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but since she also is a business person, she wants the invention too. So I don't know. For some reason, I like it when she is good rather than bad i don't really know why but no, anyway i'm with so you i'm with you gene <laughs> i i was i was really channeling david mamet at that point so <laughs> yeah he could um you know he could then decide to sell her the patent but ultimately he can't he screws her and gives her the the fake one that's gonna blow up or whatever right or self-destruct and keeps the the good one but then he realizes you know he has screwed this woman that he could potentially have partnered with and had this great life with and he has no goodness left in him that's and probably a more potent Biden thing yeah throws out his good patent into the lake but the, I, I really that, like the idea that the big asshole is the guy who ruined his company yeah, I think that's that's got that that gives that gives Amory some personal skin in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also and I also like your idea, Gene, that that Mona is ultimately virtuous. Uh, uh, that she is she is his ticket. He could potentially uh, uh, be redeemed through her, and it's through his own actions that he's he's damned. That he that he rejects the hope that she embodies. Um, I think that's probably a much stronger uh, uh, emotional spin or emotional twist uh, that'll make all the readers go, oh, damn, oh, you idiot, oh, my God. So, because that's what we want all of our readers to do. <laughs> Guys, I'm looking at the clock and, I, and I'm watching it tick down here. Um, so I, I'd like to move us into that into that final stage, that that last one last time around the table uh, uh, to give any last minute ideas, anything we didn't have time for in the in the brainstorm itself. Any any uh, uh, final thoughts that you feel would would help Zane as he moves forward in writing the story, fill his pockets with literary gold, uh, and send him on his way. Gene, we'll start with you, ma'am. Uh, Final thoughts for Zane? Uh, Well, I love what Marie said about that the story needs to shine the light into the corners of what could be. Yes. And so I think it's really important that we see the promise that he could be redeemed, this thing inside of him could bloom uh, with her, and that you lead the reader to believe that that is where the story is going until we get to the point where he sells her the fake thing. <laughs> He's unable to, to go through with it. And then I think that would be a very powerful turn. Yeah, that would be a gut punch for the readers. You bet. Yeah. Yep, I like that. Marie, what about you? Final thoughts for Zane? Uh, I, I think you have a, a good construct. I, I like the, the noir story setup that's definitely going to be powerful don't since you've selected first person point of view which is a great tool in itself be really clear as to who your main narrator is so that you don't get lost in their own streams of thought mm. so that it you use it to your advantage that he can be he because he is first person he will be a slightly unreliable narrator because everything will be completely coded in his world views uh, and and be clear on what those are so that you can deploy it to its maximum capacity because I think 
the fact that he will jostle from hope to potential to not being able to see the light or or believing there will be a downfall and he'll just avoid it right away by uh, getting ahead of it and just making sure it happens those thoughts the motions and beats he will go through internally because it's mostly internal beats that we're looking at in this story they will be very powerful so use that first person point of view tool to its full potential and be clear on who he is and i think he'll have something really cool yeah yep i agree i absolutely agree and and for myself zane uh, uh two brief things um and one i'm not quite sure how to articulate um I mentioned earlier on that that noir is is a past genre, a, a, a form that was born from a different age, and now contemporary readers uh, are using it for a lot of different reasons. And I, I would encourage you to to not become enslaved to the idealism of noir. Uh, in in that, uh, don't make it a pastiche of of noir. Invest it with contemporary uh, uh, aesthetics and values. Give us a rich, authentic story uh, rather than than broad tropes and big black lines. Uh, it's it's the nuances of the shades of gray that make noir great. And readers today are much more sophisticated in their reading because we can read a lot more than we used to, uh, in my humble opinion. Uh, and, and so as you provide a story into a sophisticated reader, you yourself must elevate your story. Use the, the, the tent poles of noir, but don't hide behind them. I guess is is the advice that I wanted to give. And the other piece is all of those things that you love about the 60s, put them in here. Find that love, find that passion. I show us why you love this era so much. Make 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 there be a love story with the 60s in this story. Let your 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 delight in the things that are happening in that era infuse the 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 set and the 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 frame of this very powerful story that you're telling and i I think that will just add that much more juice uh uh, and excitement and and a reason for readers to love the story uh because we there's nothing we enjoy more than sharing someone's love or discovering someone's love of something so that's those those are my pieces of of advice so all right zane you know how the rules of the round table here you go out and you write this bad boy uh and you put it out in the world and it can be anything it'd be a pdf on your blog uh or it can be a deal with a big publisher or whatever once this story is out in the world and you're seeding the public imagination with your tale you let us know we'll bring you back we'll take you to chicago or cleveland if you want cleveland we can go to cleveland (laughs) and we will knight you in a back alley with rats and empty beer bottles and we will make you a knight of the round table but it'll be dark it'll be noir it'll be a noir knighting are you down with that man <laughs> sure i'll i'll uh, wear my white tuxedo there you go there you go <laughs> absolutely and i'll wear my trench coat and my fedora fabulous and marie i can only imagine the the, the glitter sparkle mayhem that you will invoke uh at that particular knighting ceremony Noir will never have been more glittery, my friend. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Uh, Zane, thank you so much, man. This this was a great conversation, uh, a powerful uh, foundation for some really, really superb froth. Thank you so much for bringing it out and letting us play in your playground, man. Uh, thank you for having me. I had a very great time. Excellent, excellent. Our work is done here. We ride off into the sunset. Uh, Gene, uh, as always, uh, it's 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 wonderful to to froth with you. Uh, you you bring such a marvelous understanding of story structure and character. Obviously, it's it's represented in the Odyssey Workshop content and and curriculum that you present out there. But it's always a delight to see it in action here on the Roundtable, ma'am. Thank you so very much. This has been a delight. I had a wonderful time. 
Good, good. Actually, we're three for three. We're going to just keep going that mark. Uh, and Marie Bilodeau, uh, my co-host, uh, always a pleasure to 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 wander the back alleys uh, of, of story with you, ma'am. Uh, you're, you're a fine, friendly native guide uh, for these adventures, and, and I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I always have a lot of fun, so thank you. <laughs> you betcha. You betcha. And friends, as long as we're doling out the gratitude, thank you for hitting that play button, because uh, really, that's why we share these things. You know, it's all well and good that we get together, and it's awesome that we have this great story thing, but we share these things so you guys can can get in fuego with the story goodness and be inspired by this. So if you've clicked the play button and you, you caught that fire, that spark, thank you so much. And feel free to pay it forward. You know, blog about it, share a tweet or a Facebook post or a Google Plus post. Spread the word. There's not enough people that know about the roundtable. And clearly, we need to fix that because this is freaking <laughs> awesome. So, and and once again, the, the studio is covered in froth, uh, uh, cappuccino froth everywhere. Uh, the, the cleaning lady is going to kill me. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, here's the thing. The cleaning lady is going to come in. She's going to clear out all that froth. And then in 14 days, we're going to do this all over again. We're going to bring another fabulous guest host into the studios to pour wisdom into our ears. Another courageous guest writer bringing badassery uh, in the form of a story idea that we can brainstorm. More brainstorming fabulous roundtable goodness to be had by all. And it's, oh my God, 14 days. Holy crap, that's going to be December, man. Uh, I know, right? So, so Marie, God, what what, what can our listeners do to to make 14 days uh, uh, a, a bearable span of time before more roundtable awesomeness hits them? I, one thing I would like to recommend is, I mean, I was thinking about it when we're t- talking noir because I, I don't partake of noir stories very often, is over the next 14 days, try to read or watch something uh, that you don't usually, you wouldn't lean towards usually, something, a, a genre you've never tried, just to see the different types of stories, characters, twists, ideas that might spawn from it. So get out of your comfort zone. Try something different. That's inspired. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I will tell you, friends, as I always do, you find what you're looking for. So look for that top shelf blue label goodness. Look for, hey, we're coming up. Finally, this metaphor actually makes sense. Look for the lost Christmas present at the back of the Christmas tree. I wait all year long for that metaphor to actually have meaning and relevance. (laughs) We are there. Yes! (laughs) Look for the fabulosity in the world, friends, and if you look for it, I promise it's out there. You will find it. We will see you in 14 days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And happy holidays to everyone. We will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation, or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.